listening to the Bible 126 show. Okay, uh, obviously we're in the Torah just by way of review. And we had uh, we, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are the Torah or the Pentateuch in the Greek. And uh, of these, uh, we are, of course, in a book that's really a collection of sermons where Moses, knowing he's at the end of his days, is reviewing and giving them a final message. And uh, so the, the whole redempt, God's plan of redemption was in Exodus, his instruction for worship in Exodus 20 through Numbers 10, and then their failure of faith, where they were condemned to a 38 years, to take 38 years, what really should have been an 11-day journey, uh, in, in, in the uh, book of Numbers. Finally, we get uh, uh, during those, um, after those, uh, uh, um, they have, as you recall, as we reviewed before, the uh, conquest east of the Jordan, uh, is, uh, the king of uh, Og, the king of uh, Sion, and the, and the rest of them. Um, and But we always think of the conquests as being um, under Joshua in the Israel proper, as we would call it, or the uh, west of the uh, Jordan River. But they had several conquests east, and they actually set up some cities we're going to talk about in a minute, which is one reason I want to get this in perspective. But uh, we, we get to the book of Deuteronomy. The whole issue here is relationship. Let me surprise you, because we were talking a lot about the laws as, as Moses continues to review the various laws that <clears throat> were established in Exodus and Numbers and so forth. Uh, it's actually a set of sermons, and it's really about relationship. The basic message is that God has not changed since then, and man has not changed since then. And so the basic message, believe it or not, in the book of Deuteronomy is love. The book of Deuteronomy is the book that Jesus quotes from more than any other book. He quotes from each, he, incidentally, Jesus quotes from each of the books of the Torah and attributes them to Moses. So these people who think that Moses didn't write it haven't done their homework. Uh, if, you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you know who wrote the, book, the, the books of Moses. Moses did. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you've got bigger problems than the authorship of the Torah. But, that's, but uh, Jesus quotes more from the book of Deuteronomy than any other. It's interesting that during his temptations, the famous temptations, each one of his responses is a quote from the Scripture, and each of those Scriptures are in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, so it's not a question of do's and don'ts, really. Deuteronomy is actually not about legalism, as it would seem so in a superficial reading. It's actually about relationship. And Jesus is the fulfillment of each of these issues and each of the relationships. And I won't go through the rest. They'll be in the notes. So we'll go ahead now. And so the outline of the book is pretty simple. It's really a group of sermons and then uh, a summary of uh, the three sermons, really, and then uh, some comments that were appended, of course, by the scribes regarding Moses' very final days. And so now we mentioned last time, Deuteronomy 18, the, the qualities of a prophet and so forth. We mentioned that under uh, in the Gospel of John, we, when, they, when John the Baptist was east of the Jordan, 20 miles from Jerusalem, the, the uh, scribes had to send a special investigate, uh, investigative team to find out what was going on. There were such crowds with John the Baptist at the Jordan from the temple area that they, they wanted to find out what was going on. Now, that, that, that's very interesting itself. You realize these people were on foot. There was no re- rental cars. You know, like today in Jerusalem, you can grab a rental car, and it's a 20-mile drive, you can get to Jordan. No, these people walked 20 miles to hear John the Baptist. So many that they investigated. But when they went there, they asked three questions. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the, the uh, uh, Elijah? No. 
are you that prophet, the prophet of Moses? And of course, he said no, and then he, he was, and you go on in John 1. But this prophet of Moses, it's interesting that from Deuteronomy 18 and other passages, there was an expectation, obviously the return of Elijah, that's mentioned in Malachi and several places, and obviously uh, the, the, the uh, um, Messiah was atmosphere of expectation there. But the, the prophet of Moses, well, Jesus was, incidentally, interestingly enough, a fulfillment of that too. There's a lot of parallels between Moses and Jesus. He was spared in infant, both of them were spared in infancy. Both of them renounced a royal court. Both of them, both Jesus and Moses, had compassion for the people. Both Jesus and Moses made intercession for the people. Uh, it is said in uh, at both Exodus 34 and 2 Corinthians 3 that they spoke with God face to face. And, of course, both of them were mediators of a covenant. Moses in the Old Testament, of course, Jesus in the New Testament. So uh, it's interesting to see those parallels. But um, Deuteronomy's structure is pretty straightforward. First few verses, first a few chapters about the failure that they had endured, the conclusion of the 38 years of wilderness wandering, uh, the mutual love, that, uh, the love of God for the people, and, and the obligations in response. In fact, that's really what chapters 12 through 27 deal with: the obligations of a God-related people. And there, even though we're not under the law, there's many things that we'll glean from that as being God-related people. And then the alternatives that are before our God-related people in chapters 27 to 30, and then the final arrangements that, uh, for continuity uh, with Moses' passing at the end of the book. So that's the quick snapshot of the book. And, of course, we are in uh, chapters uh, 19 and 20 tonight. So 19. We're going to talk a little bit about the cities of refuge. We'll talk about what a goel is, and we'll talk about the principle of lex talionis, which uh, uh, you know as, a, as eye for an eye uh, and so forth. So... But it's interesting, what's happening here is they're anticipating settlement. They've been wandering for 38 years, so all the arrangements that they're used to as a traveling nomadic group are starting to shift because they're going, after Moses dies, they're going to be going in, uh, into the land under Joshua and so on, but they'll start settling, and there's some changes. They're going to start decentralizing the administration of justice. As a nomadic tribe, they had a central authority, with Moses and the priests and so forth, they're going to have to distribute that. So it's going to change, cause some changes. Under Moses, the altar had become an asylum for someone who killed another person accidentally. If you were accused of manslaughter, if you killed someone in those days, the next of kin would come after you. But if you were, if it was an accidental kind of death, what we call manslaughter, there, the provision there was if the, if they could make it to the to the to the uh, Tabernacle, the, the altar itself was a, a place that a someone innocent could find asylum. Well, that doesn't work if you're going to be spread across the land. So you'll, even the slaying of animals, by the way, was now decentralized. You remember from Deuteronomy 12. But uh, so the law of asylum had geographical changes going on. So let's jump into Deuteronomy 19, verse 1. When the Lord thy God hath cut off the nations, whose land the Lord thy God giveth thee, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their cities and in their houses, thou shalt separate three cities for thee in the midst of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. Thou shalt prepare thee a way and divide the coasts of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to inherit, into three parts, that every slayer may flee thither. So this is where you're introducing this whole idea of the the uh, cities of refuge. They actually set up three already on the east of the Jordan. They're going to set up three more on the west of the Jordan. And, uh, these, uh, and we'll take a look at these here. The, uh, 
you, first of all, you understand that when the tribes go into the land, each of the tribes, with the exception of one, gets inheritance. They by lot, they, they divide the land into regions for Judah, Simeon, Benjamin, and so forth. And uh, except for the Levites, the Levites did not inherit the land because God was their inheritance. But what they did get were 48 cities that were assigned to the Levites. There were actually 13 of those were for the family of Aaron, the priests themselves. Nine were uh, in Judah, four in Benjamin, the others were scattered. There were six, but six of these 48 cities were declared cities of refuge. And uh, uh, they were to have a, a space of about 1,000 cubits, call it 583 yards, if you will, beyond the city walls for pasture and, and raising crops and, and, and such purposes in addition to the city. So when they say the cities, it wasn't just the town. They received some area around that town. And the sacred boundary was a square, we understand, from some uh, archaeological discoveries, uh, having the four angles at the four cardinal points. So if you can visualize that, we, what we would probably call a diamond, a rhombus, but equal size, but with the, the uh, corners at, the, at uh, the cardinal points. But anyway, uh, four, six of these uh, eight, 48 cities were called cities of refuge. And uh, they were Kadesh, Shechem, Hebron, Bezer, Ramoth Gilead, and, Gol- and the Golan. And city, the town of Golan. Now, um, um, as we'll see when, the, so you get, quickly get the picture here. But we'll see as the text develops. The idea was that if you found yourself in a situation where you'd caused the accidental death of someone, you're working. And in the, in the, in the, the example that Moses will use is if the, if the head of a, uh, the axe that you're chopping down a tree should slip off the thing and hit somebody and kill him. It was accidental. There's no, there's no premeditation. There's no grudge. It's not a that's what we would call in our vernacular is manslaughter, equivalent to if you accidentally hit someone in a car or something. Well, uh, if that was the case, what you did right then and there, you had to find your way quickly to one of the six cities of refuge. And if you could convince the city fathers there, and there's a procedure that will come to, um, that it was manslaughter, not premeditated, they would give you asylum. The, the uh, avenger of blood, the next of kin for the person that was killed that was coming after you, could not touch you if you had made it to the city of refuge and were accepted by them. And as long as you remained in the city of refuge, you were safe. If you left the city of refuge for whatever reason, you were fair game to the avenger of blood. See, you realize they didn't have an organized police force. It's interesting to realize we have a nation here, Israel, that, had no, that didn't have a police force as such, also had no prisons. <laughs> you, uh, they took care of that another way. And uh, so it's a different kind of cultural setting, but uh, and we, we observe this with great fascination. In fact, if you read most commentators, I have, most commentators that will talk about this tend to regard this whole procedure we're getting into as just a quaint custom of ancient Israel, this nomadic tribe converting to a settlement tribe, um, as, uh, as just, you know, a curious cultural background. It may have some implications that are far more profound. Once you recognize that the Scripture is designed by, uh, by God himself and, and every detail there is specifically by his engineering, we start asking ourselves some questions. What's, what, what's going on here? Because there's another aspect of the cities of refuge that's very strange. You, you had this asylum in the city of refuge until the high priest died. When the high priest died, you were free to go and you were protected. And you go back home. Now you say to yourself, that's kind of weird, because these six cities are scattered across the whole nation. 
And what does the, what does the death of the high priest down in Jerusalem have to do with anything? But that was the procedure that was in the, in the Torah. Well, let's take a look at these six cities to get a feeling for the geography. Uh, three of them are west of the Jordan, and three of them are east of the Jordan. Uh, and uh, so let's take a look. The first one we'll look at is Kadesh. It's up in the north. It's uh, west of the Jordan, just uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, some distance. And it's quite a word means holy, by the way. Kadesh Naphtali. There's a Kadesh Barnea, which is down the south. Don't confuse the two. But Kadesh in in, uh, Galilee is the one we're talking about. It was a Levitical city of refuge assigned to the Gershonite Levites. Uh, And it was also, the name may be familiar to you because you may remember that was Barak in the book of Judges. That was where he was born. He and Deborah assembled Zebulun and Naphtali tribes in uh, Judges 4 at at Kadesh. And uh, later on, after the... uh, after Solomon and the civil war and the, the nations are divided and the Assyrians finally are used by God as judging the northern kingdom. When they invade the land under um, Tiglath-Pileser, uh, this city was the first to be captured and its inhabitants deported, simply because it's at the northernmost point, pretty much at the northern part of it. So that's Kadesh. The next one is Shechem, a little further south, just uh, southwest uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a very famous city for a lot of reasons. The word actually means shoulder. And uh, here's where God appears to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And he pitched his tent and he built an altar there under the Oak of Moray. Your King James says the Plain of Moray. It's actually mistranslated to Oak of Moray. But anyway, uh, this is also where Jacob reentered the land later and, and bought a parcel of field where he'd spread his tent from the children of Hamor, which was Shechem's father. And this was bequeathed ultimately to uh, Joseph. That's in Genesis 48 and mentioned in Joshua 24. It's alluded to in John 4, but also this is where Joshua gave his farewell charge at the end of uh, the book of Joshua. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord and so on. It's also where Joseph is buried. So uh, Shechem. And uh, it was a Shechem that Rehoboam was made king uh, after Solomon dies, but it was also there where the Israelites revolted to Jeroboam, who actually made Shechem his capital for a, for a time. And it was... Um, Ephraim's civil capital, as Shiloh was its religious capital, that Ephraim being the northern kingdom. And uh, it's presently, today you see it in the news as Nablus. And Titus Vespasian uh, uh, named it Neapolis and, uh, in, the, in the Roman period, and uh, it gets corrupted to the word Nablus, uh, which is, a, it is the way it's labeled today, and you find it in the news. You may recall that's where one of the places that uh, there's always, uh, uh, you know, uh, tensions and so forth. Okay, let's take a look at the thir- a third one called Hebron. Uh, that's way down south, uh, just uh, west of the, uh, the uh, Dead Sea. And uh, the word it means uh, alliance or fellowship. Its earlier name, which you'll also probably re- recognize from Genesis and Joshua, uh, is Kiriath Arba. It was a favorite home of Abraham. That's where he pitched his tent of the Oaks of Mamre, a different place. From here he went to rescue Lot and brought him back after the defeat of the nine kings in Genesis 14. And this is where his name was changed from Abraham to Abraham with the insertion of the heh in the name and the Spirit of God breathed into him. This is where the Lord and two angels, remember the three visitors, meet Abraham and promise him a son and uh, go on the next day to Sodom and Gomorrah because they had a little date there to deal with that issue. Genesis 19, you may recall. This is where Sarah was buried, in the cave Machpelah. There's a very, very highly venerated burial place called Machpelah, which is protected uh, 
uh, by the uh, Muslims because they, they venerate Abraham and, and have control of that region right there, which Abraham, you know, was purchased from Ephron the Etite and all of that. Well, so Hebron, it was taken by Joshua when under the conquest, given to Caleb. And later on, when David becomes king of Judah, this becomes his royal residence for uh, seven and a half years, his royal, until he was anointed as king over all of Israel, not just king of Judah. Uh, see, uh, he reigned there for seven and a half years as king of Judah before he was made the king of over all Israel in Second Samuel. And it also became the residence of re- his rebellious son, Absalom, who had expected to get most of his support from his native tribe of Judah. Hebron, obviously, is in the tribe, of, in the region of, uh, known as Judah. And so we have in the west, Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. Let's take a look at the east. We have in the south, going up north now, uh, a town called Bezer. And uh, it's, uh, mean, the word means fortress. It's a city of the Reubenites. It was assigned by, uh, as they took lots, to the children of Merari. That's one of the, uh, you know, the uh, Levitical tribes. It's been identified with the ruined vision of Barazin. It's about 12 miles north of Heshbon, and Heshbon is 20 miles east of uh, Dead Sea, um, at the northern tip, so that's roughly where it is. And so now we have Ramoth Gilead, which is uh, uh, means heights, by the way. And this is uh, familiar in our, in our ears because in First Kings twenty-two, this is where Ahab um, joined Jehoshaphat and endeavored to rescue it from the hands of the king of Syria, and it was mortally wounded and so forth. At last, <laughs> and anyway, similar attempt was made by Ahaziah and Joram when the latter was wounded. So there's an interesting parallel. But, 1 Kings 22, 2 Kings 8. And this is the city where Jehu, who was the son of Jehoshaphat, was anointed by one of his sons, one of the sons of the prophets. So uh, these towns are, you know, occur frequently in the scripture. Then we have the sixth of the bunch is Go- the town of Golan. The Golan Heights is a region there uh, east of uh, the Dead Sea, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there was a town there called Golan, and it uh, means exile. It's a city in the, the general region is also called Bashan. And remember the kings of Bashan. Og, the king of Bashan, was a giant, one of the Rephaim. And I won't start on all that again. But, um, so it, and its so-called suburbs were assigned to the Gershonite Levites. And uh, uh, Og was the, the king of Og is the one that united all those principalities to become the king of Bashan. It was, the town, incidentally, was destroyed by Alexander the Great, but by then, it also had given his name to a large district called Golanias, and uh, so it became, in effect, the eastern boundary of the Galilee. It's also part of the Tetrarchy we read about uh, of Philip, and uh, all that's in Josephus, and there's a lot of background on it. Well, all of this, now, one of the things that, um, as we deal with the cities of refuge, one of the things that's missed by many, many people, and I'm going to suggest to you, because I think it's, I, 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 I think it's interesting, I often get challenged by people Say, Chuck, you say that everything in the Scripture is there for our learning. And furthermore, that everything in the Scripture, one way or another, points to Jesus Christ. Well, for heaven's sakes, what about these cities of refuge? Here's this quaint practice to provide asylum for manslaughter refugees. And uh, what's that got to do with anything in modern days? Well, whenever you have a puzzle like that, there's a simple way to solve the puzzle. And let's put Christ right in the middle of it and see what happens, Okay. Now, of course, in Christ's case, let's take a look at Jesus Christ. He was crucified. How many knew that? About 90%, huh? All right. I'm just kidding. Okay. Was his crucifixion first-degree murder or manslaughter? 
Well, from God's point of view, it's first-degree murder, right? Because he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23 tells us, right? So you can argue, justifiably, that from God's perspective, it was premeditated. I would argue, okay, that's, that, that's fine. Not only is it premeditated, it was not a tragedy, it was an achievement. Because thousands of years went into the preparation for that climactic event of the universe. Everything in the universe, throughout the universe, you measured in terms of a cross that was erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. But that's from God's point of view, very premeditated. What about from our point of view, yours and mine? And I'm going to see, remember what, is it manslaughter? I'm going to suggest it was because Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross, Father, for they, forgive them. Why? For they what? No, not what you do. So from our point of view, you could argue that it's manslaughter. Well, in that case, the cities of refuge apply, don't they? Well, what is our city of refuge? Jesus Christ. So I'm going to argue that the, that, uh, that, uh, the, the refuge for man, six cities, the number of man, um, is, is uh, Jesus Christ, of course. But, okay, um, th- this whole city of refuge idea obtained until what event occurred? The high priest died. Who's our high priest? And he died, and he died for us. So we have freedom by the death of the high priest in Hebrews 7.25 and 1 John 2.21. So in a fascinating way, to me at least, I think that I see the cities of refuge in, their, in the very strange rabbinical way as a type of Christ. And uh, we're going to see some more of those kinds of things. Uh, the wages of sin is death. That's part of what the whole uh, city of refuge thing is about, Romans 6.23. And God's appointed refuge, of course, is Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12. 4, There's no other name among men, appointed unto men, uh, uh, but Jesus Christ. Now, the whole idea of the cities of refuge, of course, you'll discover in the Torah, there's all kinds of rules that they had to make sure that the highways were always clear. They had to make sure that the bridges were always repaired. There's special laws to make sure that at any, 24 hours a day, uh, every day of the year, that it was clear that in case a guy was trying to get there, there'd be no encumbrance. So the whole idea was to make it easy to read. That's why these six cities, you notice, they were scattered across that map um, to be easy to reach. Well, uh, there's, there is no easier reach than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has opened all, right? Revelation 22, 17, so on. And uh, doors were never locked. The gates were never locked on the city of refuge, by the way. And uh, it was stocked with provisions for that very reason. There was no other help available, and Hebrews 10 makes a point of that. And all of this works until the high priest dies. And our high priest has died on our behalf. So it all works. Now, there are some differences. You can say, gee, check, that's pretty interesting. That's a type. Okay, but every type can be misapplied also. There are some differences. In, in the city of refuge, only the innocent were saved. In our case, we're all guilty. Okay? So that breaks down there. And, of course, Christ is far more available to us than the city of refuge was to the fleer. But, uh, so, let's take a look at what the words mean, by the way. Kadesh means righteousness. Uh, and, of course, the city of refuge thing could, could never be accused a second time. Um, Shechem means shoulder. And like a shepherd, he carries us. Hebron means fellowship. And, of course, we enter into fellowship with him. Bezer means fortress or strong. And he's our fortress. And in him we're safe, secure. Ramoth means heights, and we dwell in the heights, even though we are in exile. And we are exiles, we're pilgrims. We all are strangers to this world. In that sense, the, 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 the predicament of the, the fleer to a city of refuge, he was estranged from his true home.
Well, let's go on. That's enough of that digression, a little background, the city is refuge. Let's pick up Deuteronomy verse 4. De- uh, uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 4. This is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither, that he may live. Whoso killeth his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hated not in time past, as when a man goeth into a wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetcheth the stroke with the axe to cut down at the tree, and the head slippeth from the hell, and lighteth upon his neighbor that he die, he, that is the one in this predicament, shall flee unto one of those cities and live. And so we're now going to just talk a little bit, something I didn't talk about before, this, the whole concept in, in uh, it called the Goel. And uh, we generally translate that as a kinsman redeemer. And uh, we find this uh, developed for us in detail in the book of Ruth, as in, through the example you know, we always learn best from stories. That's why we enjoy novels so much. And some of the histori- much of our history, we really learn from historical novels. Well, in that sense, Ruth is a true story, not a, not, not a fiction, but it's a, the narrative of that love story is also the way we understand what a goel or a kinsman redeemer really is. In, the, in, the, in that love story, as you recall, he redeemed the land of to, uh, inheritance, and he performed the Leverite marriage, taking Ruth to, to bride and... Uh, I won't get started on that. But to understand the kinsman redeemer mode, he had some conditions. He had to be a kinsman. Couldn't be just somebody who wanted to help. He had to be a kinsman of the person in the predicament. He had to be willing, obviously. He had a choice. He didn't have to do this. But he also had to be willing, and he had to be able to perform. If it was a redemption thing, he had to be able to pay for it, if that's what it is. If it's a levirate marriage, he had to be able to take the woman to, uh, to, to, to bride and so forth. And uh, he, something he also need to understand, he had to assume all the obligations of the, benefit, of the beneficiary. You may recall, of course, uh, Ruth, which, who was a Moabitess, that had uh, come there with her mother-in-law, the uh, husband of, Ruth, of Naomi, and uh, their three sons who had married these Moabite women had passed away. And when Ruth finally, after 10 years, discovers things are better back in Bethlehem, where she came from, she, she uh, goes there, and Ruth insists upon being with her. Um, your people will be my people, your God will be our gods, and so forth. And where you buried, I'll be buried. That, was, that famous commitment of Ruth to Naomi is, is totally very touching. When she gets there, of course, they're destitute. And she gleans. There was a law of, of their welfare approach was that you, if you were owned the land and you uh, uh, gleaned the land, you uh, sent your reapers through the land, you could only go through once. Whatever you missed, whatever fell by the wayside, was to be left for the widows and orphans, the destitute. That was the way they operated. So as was the custom, Ruth, young Ruth, uh, uh, is gleaning for herself and for Naomi and happens on a field by Boaz. What she doesn't realize is Boaz is the kinsman of Naomi. And out of that, and, and, uh, out of that relationship that starts there... Um, Naomi recognized there's an opportunity not only for herself to get her land back by having a, a Boaz redeem it for her, but also to provide a future for this uh, beloved daughter-in-law uh, who's the widow of her son, uh, from her son's death. So, so um, she instructs Ruth how to proceed. And she approaches, under certain conditions, she approaches uh, Boaz, who's in the role of the kinsman redeemer, uh, to, per- to, uh, to perform the Leverite marriage, to take her to to put the skirt of his authority over her and uh, take her as a bride. Many people who read that in, in uh, chapter 3 of Ruth misunderstand. It sounds like she's propositioning him in the middle of the night. No, she's doing something even more aggressive. She's asking him to be, the, be her, uh, 
her, her, her uh, to take her to bride to to uh, to marry her. And he wants to, except he points there's a complication. He's a kinsman, but he's not the nearer kinsman. There's somebody close to it who has a priority claim. So in chapter 4, a big climax of the book, uh, he, he brings the city council together and, and, uh, and brings this guy, this, this uh, closer kinsman, and he's perfectly willing to redeem the land for Naomi. He says, gee, how great I'll do that. And that's, of course, a setback because you're all hoping that the, to pursue this love story that Boaz and Ruth will get together. But he, he's willing to do the land. But then he discovers that part of the picture is he's got to assume all obligations that are involved. And one is to take Ruth to bride. And he can't do that. So he's willing but not able. So he, he, uh, there's some reasons he can't do that apparently. So, so that, that delights Boaz, of course, because as he passes the baton, so to speak, it happens to be a shoe, but the point he passes the authority to do that um, um, that's the big climax where Boaz takes Ruth. And that's the reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's the reason that uh, uh, it becomes known as the city of David, because it turns out there's a prophecy in the end of the book of Ruth that points strangely to David as the king. And that's, this is all in the time of the judges, even before the days of Samuel. So the idea of David being a king was prophetic long before Saul was even thought of. So very interesting uh, implication. But uh, the, the, the whole idea of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, he had to be a kinsman. The one that was going to redeem, had to, to redeem you and I as sons of Adam, it had to be a kinsman. It had to be a man. And that's what God uh, ordains in Genesis chapter 3, that it would be an offspring of Adam that would be the redeemer. So that's one of the conditions. That's why we, Jesus Christ is not just a redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer. That's why God himself became man to perform in man's uh, uh, inability. Uh, to comply to all effect, uh, all the the fractures of the law. So uh, the whole idea of the goal, kinsman redeemer, and he had to be willing. He, indeed, Jesus was willing. In fact, he was in charge of the whole pro- program at the crucifixion. And he had to be able. He was able because he was innocent. None of us could be a redeemer because we're all guilty. It had to be someone that was able to perform. And, of course, he assumed all the obligations, not just some of them. So it's interesting. That's what the goal is all about. But there's a flip side to this. Many of many people are familiar with the kinsman redeemer aspect of Jesus Christ. What we forget is that the kinsman redeemer, the goel, you turn the coin over, he was also the avenger of blood. If somebody had caused injury to the family, it would be the goel who goes after that person to avenge the family, and it's to protect uh, the um, the. Uh, the innocent person from the avenger of blood. That's what the cities of refuge were all about. So Jesus, is, Jesus came the first time as our kinsman redeemer. But he will be coming the second time in his role as the avenger of blood. In Isaiah 61, uh, there's a quote that when Jesus is, is at Nazareth, he, he opens the book of Isaiah in Luke 4. He opens the book of Isaiah and he reads his mandate from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But he does a very strange thing when you examine that passage. He stops at a comma and closes the book and says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So if you read that, first the two verses of Isaiah 61, up to that comma, it describes his ministry, healing the sick and so forth and teaching. Um, but the, the comma, the place where he stopped, if he had gone on, says, And the day of vengeance of our God. That comma has lasted 2,000 years. But the day will come when he's coming to finish that mandate. And that's what the second coming is all about. 
So getting back to Deuteronomy, uh, that's uh, verse 6. Lest the avenger of blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot and overtake him because the way is long and slay him. Whereas he was not worthy of death inasmuch he hated him not in time past. In other words, what they're trying to avoid is the case where the avenger, really angry because his, his, his uh, member of his family has been, been uh, killed by this person. Uh, he's after him. But he's not, the, 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 the guy is not, uh, the, the, the victim here is not worthy of death because it wasn't premeditated. It wasn't that he did it out of hate or anger. It was an accident, in other words. So because of all that, it says, Wherefore I command thee, saying, Moses being, Thou shalt separate three cities for thee. They've all got, got at this time, they've got three set aside on the east of the Jordan. We're talking about three more on the west of the Jordan. And if the Lord thy God enlarge thy coast, as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, and give thee all the land which he promised to give unto thy fathers, and if thou shalt keep all these commandments to do them, which I command thee this day, to love the Lord thy God, and to walk ever in his ways, then thou shalt add three cities more for thee besides these three, and that innocent blood be not shed in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and so blood be upon thee. But if any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him, now this is a different situation here. This is called murder. Uh, we would call it premeditated murder, murder in the first, if you will. Any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him and rise up against him and smite him mortally that he die and fleeth into one of these cities. Then the elders of the city shall send and fetch him thence. In other words, the elders of his city shall send and fetch him thence and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Then I shall not pity him, but thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with thee. So see, the, in the uh, city of refuge could not provide sanctuary for a murderer. Uh, he, was re- he, he was to be returned to the town from which he, he, he came, and uh, the avenger of blood was free to, to, uh, to do it. And the whole idea is that uh, God's blessing upon the nation depended on them following these procedures. And uh, so thou shalt, uh, now so, so much for the city of refuge. Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thy inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess that. Moving a boundary stone was, was, uh, was like stealing property, in effect. And uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 in many respects, it's equivalent today to what we call white-collar crime or embezzlement or, or uh, uh, you know, thie- uh, thieving uh, through um, title, what have you. And so... Um, then if you have a situation, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in, it or, uh, in any sin that he sitteth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall a matter be established. So this is um, uh, a, uh, uh, a rule that is uh, um, echoed all through the Scripture and in the New Testament. And it's rather fascinating to realize that the, at the trial of Jesus Christ, they could not get witnesses to agree. Scripture makes that. In fact, every detail, I won't digress in this direction except to mention the fact that every detail of the six trials, the three Hebrew trials, the three Roman trials, that night after Gethsemane, uh, every detail of them were illegal. And there's a long list of those uh, that are worth your study. It's rather interesting. Um, but now, uh, obviously, uh, there are cases where there would be cases where there's only one witness available. If a false witness rises up against any man to testify against him that, that which is wrong, 
Then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother. Well, let's back up here a second. See, it's interesting that there's a central tribunal of priests and judges that will adjudicate this thing and uh, that uh, will be accountable, if you will, to, to administer this justice. See, violating the Ninth Commandment was uh, uh, another evil to be purged. We're going to see that they, the, when, when these violations occurred, they were capital crimes. To be, to be uh, caught in adultery was a capital crime. So uh, it, they didn't mess around. And so it... Uh, it uh, anyway, the, the, anyway, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done to his brother. So if you're a false witness... You are, and, and it's found out, you will inherit the very punishment that you are testifying against for the other guy. So if, you're, if, it's a, if, it's a, if it's a capital murder situation, the false witness will be killed. That would take care of perjury, I think. <laughs> then shall you deal unto him as he, had th- uh, as he had thought to have done to his brother, and so shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. For thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. And that's what the, that, that, that peculiar principle is called lex talionis. And it's a principle in law that uh, it was previously given, by the way, in Exodus 21. And uh, in Leviticus 24, you'll find that. This is not a new introduction here. Moses is just recounting all of this, if you will. And it was uh, uh, given to uh, uh, encourage the punishment of uh, capital cases in both directions. It sounds so severe to us because of our background. But what it was intended to convey is that it should fit the crime. If it's a murder, then the guy dies. If, it's a, if he maimed somebody, then you maim him. That was the concept. It was, it not, it was not just the idea of being severe. It incorporates the idea of not going beyond what was done. In other words, if, 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 he, if he maimed somebody, you wouldn't kill him. You would maim him. That was the, the concept that has, has in it the concept of, of uh, 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 we have it in our Constitution. It's called cruel and unusual. You want to avoid cruel and unusual punishment, same kind of idea. It sounds strange to us because we don't think in those tribal terms. But the whole idea is that the punishment should fit the crime. That's the, that's the, it's intent to be a restraint uh, as well as a, a punishment. So this is the, the law of retribution. As I say, it's in Exodus 21 24. It's interesting that, it, while it's interesting to understand the Old Testament, you also realize in Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, Jesus denied its application in personal relationships. This was a judicial principle under appropriately constituted court and not something that you applied to the neighbor next door or over the fence or something. So, so it's, uh, it's not, uh, Jesus denied its application personally. Now the point also as we go through the Torah to realize is that God means what he says and says what he means. And one of the things that gets echoed throughout the Torah and all, throughout Deuteronomy is that God intends to enforce his laws. You say, Jesus, we're not under the law. Uh, that's the whole point, I think. God enforces his law. However, the throne of God, thanks to Jesus Christ, has become a mercy seat. And that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with the, the notion that the mercy seat, 
which is the, what we consider the lid of the, ta- of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Um, it, it appears it's possible it's destined to be the very throne that Christ will rule in the millennium. And uh, that whole study is another digression I mentioned just in passing to stimulate your, your, your curiosity into this area. The mercy seat had may, it may be the one part of the Ark of the Covenant that has a future. It's the part that's not wood. It's, it's gold, solid gold. It endures, and it has a role in the millennium, we believe. So, interestingly enough. So, so much. That's a, that was Deuteronomy 19. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Talk a little bit about war. It may surprise us that the, the Scripture has a great deal to say about administering war and military service and some other topics. So, let's get in here. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies which means there will be occasions when they will. And seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Very, very uh, encouraging um, announcement here. God is highlighting the fact that when they're up against somebody and, and they're way outnumbered, don't worry about it. He's asking them to remember who brought you out of Egypt. And uh, God resorted to incredible theatrics, if I may put it that way, in getting them out of Egypt, and for many reasons, I'm sure, but one of which is that from that point on, they could look back to that and realize that their God was able. And if they're being responsive to God's command, they have no reason to fear. And so it says, And it shall be that when ye are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. This is how they're to be rallied and encouraged. This priest will say, And he shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And the officer shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house and hath not dedicated, or more precisely used it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicated. <laughs> what we're going to hear here is a whole bunch of exemptions from military service. And this is incredible uh, contrast to the practice of the day. The, 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 in those days, uh, uh, combat was personal and ruthless, weapons primitive. And yet, uh, here in Israel's case... Um, there are all kinds of exemptions. If a guy has just built a new house, that's a reason. That he, why should he go to battle, as he's saying? What man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there that hath betrothed the wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And it goes on. And the officers shall speak further unto the people. So they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. (laughs) In other words, his weakness could cause other people's death. You know, I just got back from the National uh, Security Forum at the Air War College. I've been professionally trained uh, in my earlier years uh, in the professional military. I cannot recall these kinds of exemptions in any of our military doctrines. Uh, I I, I wish I had really done my homework in Deuteronomy back then. I might have had a little different perspective. Uh, (laughs) But it's it's interesting to read this, especially against the fabric of the times. 
And uh, indeed, it's other, further, it's a subtle evidence that God is the key, not, not uh, their particular military strength as such. Goes, and, and Moses goes on, It shall be when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. And when thou comest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And it shall be, if it make thee answer of peace, and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. In other words, war, actual combat, is intended to be a last resort. And they're instructed here at first to make a peace offer, and if that's accepted, then the city will become a tributary, owe them tribute and, 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 and labor, as, as the customs were, if they, if they, in other words, if they'll surrender. But you offer them peace first. And it's only if they didn't, uh, refuse that that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, it, uh, if, if, that they don't, if they're willing to become a vassal to Israel um, in a peaceful terms, then you, they, they are to offer that first. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. And the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thy hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. And so they kill off the men and they take the women. With the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take unto thyself. And thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Thus shalt thou do to all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. Now, he's not talking about the Canaanites. Because they're instructed to go wipe out every man, woman, and child of these particular tribes. And we need to understand that when we get the if, if, if that's strange to you, you need to get into the book of Judges and understand what was really going on there. You need to understand why it was that God instructed them that certain tribes were to be totally eliminated. And it's fascinating, of course, because under Joshua they did a pretty good job. But in the next generation in the book of Judges, they failed to do that. And uh, the whole book of Judges is a, a concatenation of failures where they failed to do that. And then they, these pockets that re, were, they left become problems. And God will raise up a deliverer and deliver them. And yet they still fall back into the same thing. So the net of it is these, there's a whole, the whole book of Judges is a chronicle of their failure to follow through. What's fascinating, if you study the book of Judges, do it with a map. And every time you read about one of these battles or one of these regions, put, mark it on the map. And when you're through the book of Judges, you will have a map. And what's fascinating about that map it, the, the areas that they remained are the areas of the Golan, that region that's today called the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. And these, these regions uh, that, were, that they failed to deal with the Book of Judges are regions that to this day are still the, 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 the uh, place of their enemies. And the capital, of course, was Jericho, Beth Herod, the house of the moon god. Now, fascinating it is that today... Under the flag of Islam, the people that are the, the so-called Palestinian Liberation Organization is a, is a manifestation of the same regions. So it's, it's interesting. It tends to corroborate the view held by some that demons are territorial. They're assigned certain geographic regions. And it would seem uh, to be borne out in modern history, strangely enough. But let's move on. But of the cities of these cities, he's talking about cities, not those cities, but the cities further out. Of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. Nothing that breathes. 
Why? Because they've got a gene pool problem. Because of, these are the Rephaim. These are modern, or I should say, post-flood Nephilim. There, was a, there, is a, there is a gene pool problem that God is asking them to deal with. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should ye, so should ye sin against the Lord thy, your God." Back in Genesis, when God told Abraham that he would be leaving, but after 400 years his people would return to this land, Satan from that could conclude that he had four centuries to lay down a minefield. 400 years to lay down the same kind of mischief that led to the flood of Noah in Genesis 6. And uh, it fascinates me, unless you really understand Genesis 6 and what really happened back there, you will not understand most of the Old Testament. Because it didn't confine itself to just before the flood. There were incidents of that kind subsequently. There they're called the Rephaim. They happen to be giants, but that's not the real issue. You need to understand that anyway, so I encourage you to, to follow through on that. But, uh, okay. When thou shalt besiege a city a long time, and making war against it to take it, thou shalt not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them. For thou mayest eat of them, and thou shalt not cut them down, for the tree of the field is man's life, to employ them in, in the siege. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> we read this. If you read it without understanding the background, it's a little strange. These particular tribes, you cut down, and you don't leave anything that breathes. But, but, but watch out for the fruit trees. <laughs> leave them there. Uh, actually, the, what they're talking about here, um, if they do a siege, one of the main uh, uh, Resources in military terms was was the uh, the, lu- the lumber, and uh, one of the reasons that the, the 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 land became so bare under the Romans because they cut down all the trees to 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 enforce the siege during the fall of Jerusalem back in 70 A.D. That's why so much of it's barren. Much of that's been repaired by a very aggressive long-term tree planting tradition they've done there. But uh, trees are, are were a key resource. But it's interesting they can cut the the. the, the um, they can cut down the, uh, uh, you know, do not destroy the trees by forcing axe against them, for thou mayest eat of them. The fruit trees they were to leave. Part of that is for the fruit, and part of it is for the avoid erosion. Uh, they could take the other trees to help them in a siege, but the fruit trees they were not to because that was a long-term source of, uh, of resource. Don't just, you know, it's a, only the trees which thou knowest that they be not trees for meat or for food, meets the old English term, but for food. Thou shalt destroy and cut them down. Thou shalt build bulwarks against the city that maketh war with thee until it be subdued. In other words, go ahead and cut down the trees that are not fruit trees. You can use those to, for the siege material, for the military engineering, but uh, not the fruit trees. And so therein lies chapter 20. And uh, may the record show that we finished on time. Amazing. For, yeah, isn't that, a, that is a shocker, isn't it? Yes. So uh, uh, it's so shocking I should call for a closing prayer, but we'll go into another session after the cookie break. We, we can't go into the next session until the cookies are gone, but I think we've got a good start on them. So uh, let's take, let's take a, a ten-minute break. Let, let's not make it longer than that because uh, uh, a lot of people have driven a long way, and so if we, get, if we keep the break down, you'll get out of here a little earlier. If, if it drags on, you're really taking out of time. Uh, people. Anyway, so um, let's take, take a ten-minute break, and we'll hit session two.